This is Sun on Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. This hit by the Seattle band Mudhoney inspired the city's grunge scene. But the message is not what Mudhoney's bassist, Guy Madison, would suggest. Do not touch someone if they are sick. Keep to social distancing, wear a mask, wash your hands. Guy not only still tours with Mudhoney, he's also a nurse at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. He also recently released a new podcast called Emergency Room, The COVID Diaries. We caught up on October 21st to talk about his life in music and in medicine during the pandemic. So I understand you became a nurse and joined Mudhoney around the same year, around 2000. How have you been able to juggle both careers over the past two decades? <laughs> um yeah, that's right. About It was actually 2001 for both of them. And the juggling thing has been both easy and difficult at, at, at different times. Uh, one of the great things about being a nurse is that the scheduling can be quite flexible because um, there's a lot of us and um, – we don't. We work longer shifts, usually twelve-hour shifts. So we're not we're not usually at work for five days a week like most people who work an eight-hour shift are. And then we can swap shifts around between ourselves. And so I've always been able to all my time at Harborview be able to sort of uh, massage my schedule to fit in with the mud honey touring thing. Of course, the difficult part is sometimes some of the mud honey stuff requires us to be gone for quite a while, and I've had to ask. A couple of times of special exemptions for that. And then sometimes there's just been stuff that we haven't been able to do as Mud Honey because of my scheduling at the hospital. And I'm very thankful that my bandmates are willing to make that sacrifice for for me and my career. Man, I can't imagine like when you do make it work, like that's great you make it work, but I'm thinking about being on tour, you know, let's say you play four nights in a row and then you come back to back to back 12 hour shifts as a nurse, like that's got to be exhausting at times, right? Yeah, they're always the worst is when a tour finishes off and then I've used up all my available time off and I have to be back literally at work for the for the 12 hour shift the next day and that first shift is usually a little difficult to acclimatize to. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So I understand that you also moved from Australia to the states specifically for music. What's the backstory there? Yeah, so um in I I moved to Seattle in 1993. Previously, I'd been in a band uh, in Australia. I'd been in a few bands in Australia, but I'd been in one in particular that was called uh, Lubricated Goat, and, uh, <laughs> and that's a funny name. And we had a contract with a, a great American record label called Amphetamine Reptile that was making some great, putting out some great records during the 1980s. And uh, I'd become friends with a lot of American musicians, we toured in the late 80s, um, that, that band, Lubricated Goat, toured the US, and I met a lot of musicians who were like-minded and doing the same sort of music that we were doing. Some of them were the guys from Mudhoney and uh, made this connection. And uh, Mudhoney had uh, come out to Australia a couple of times in the late 80s and early 90s. And, uh, you know, we'd reconnected and we actually did some recording in Australia for a, a side project. And I came over to sort of deliver some of the products of that recording. And, um, and I was here just uh, uh, working with um, some of the people that I'd met before. And as it happened, I ended up staying here. It it wasn't uh, there wasn't a grand plan at first. I was just here working on different projects, and it sort of grew into other things after that. 
That's amazing. And so, I mean, obviously music has been a big part of your life, but what drew you to nursing? Well, um, you know, as as things pressed on in the nineties, um, I was in some. I was in another band with uh, Mark, the singer of Mud Honey, called Blood Loss in the nineteen nineties, and we had a a small record deal, and we did some touring. And it's uh, not everyone that, uh, and I'm sure all the musicians out there can relate to this that music can be a difficult career to sustain yourself in financially. And I had a, a lot of different jobs, side gigs to to pay the rent essentially. And uh, my uh, wife and I, my my wife's um, an American from the Pacific Northwest, and we took a look at things in the late 90s and we thought, well, perhaps we could do better for ourselves. And we decided to both go back to school and she got a degree in library science and I decided to take up nursing. And that, so it was partly driven by looking for a, you know, like a, a better lifestyle and more security. And um, also I Previously, a long time ago, I'd been a medical assistant in Australia. We call them enrolled nurses over there. So I knew that I had the ability to do the job. I wasn't squeamish and um, and I had an interest in it. And so I thought that I could hopefully succeed at being a nurse. Yeah. So now you've been a nurse at Harborview for 20 years now. And how has, I mean, I can't imagine what the past year and a half, two years have been like for you, you know, with COVID now, I mean, very prominent, I'm sure, in your daily life as a nurse. I mean, how has dealing with COVID impacted your work as a nurse, but also just your mental health? Yeah, so um, that's that's a great question, and it's not an easy one to answer because it's so multifaceted, but I will try. During COVID, just the heightened um, anxiety that goes along with the potential of perhaps getting sick with COVID, the potential of unintentionally allowing the disease to spread has really um, dented the psyche of healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, porters, the people that um, that clean the facilities. Everyone has had this heightened sense of anxiety by the presence of COVID and I think that's been reflected in the amount of people that are leaving the healthcare professions at the moment, which is you know something that's part of the national news at the moment. It's I, I don't think I'm I'm saying anything that it, that isn't pretty well known on the national stage at this point. I mean, was there a moment where I don't know everything really came to a head for you? Like, was there a moment when things started getting really overcrowded or maybe you heard someone say something that really struck you, you know, during this entire pandemic while you were at work? I mean, are there things that are happening that kind of go beyond the headlines that you've been able to see firsthand? Well, yeah, I I mean, I see, I've seen a lot of things that, um, that have been pretty distressing. I've seen a lot of my co-workers emotionally distraught, um, exhausted, um, in tears um, because of the of the work that they're doing. I think there was this general feeling of um, dread when the first patient was discovered in Seattle. And as you know, we had the first, the very you know patient patient zero or patient one was uh, here in in Everett. And I think that you know there'd been these reports of something going on in China, but then. That first day that we had uh, an actual case here, I think that sent a sort of 
a shockwave through the healthcare community because we didn't know how bad it would get. And very quickly, it, it got bad very quickly. I think the day that I, I remember distinctly was we started to see more cases and we started to um, really start to build our protocols to protect the staff and um, the patients from infection from the disease. And what happened was we needed a lot more people that we call observers. They're, um, they're people that watch other people while they go in and out of rooms. So they're trained observers to look for breaks in the, in the um, infection control protocols. And the reason they're there, they're sort of like the canary in the coal mine. They're watching to see if something, if something goes wrong, if there's danger at some point. And we needed a lot of those people because we were starting to isolate lots of people that were coming in through the hospital that had symptoms that looked like COVID. And they put out a general message across um, our, our intranet at the hospital requesting people to volunteer for that role. And I think that was the day that I realized that something, that this was going to be just a complete upending of our, of our life at that point when they, when they sent out that that request. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, where we were last year and where we are today and thinking about like there was a moment this summer where we we're like, okay, people are getting vaccinated, this thing's going to go away and then bam, delta variant hit. And, you know, with with all the controversies around like mask mandates, anti-mask mandates, anti-vaxxers, you know, it just it became politicized somehow. I'm just curious, like from your perspective, like as a nurse, like what are your thoughts are on like where where the pandemic started and where we are today? Like, are you surprised that that a year and a half plus, like we are still dealing with this pandemic, you know, in a in a real way? It is a little surprising that it's lasted this long uh, or that we're still here 18, 20 months after the initial outbreak. I initially didn't think that um, I thought that we'd be able to get on top of it quicker. Um, but as things wore on, it became pretty apparent that that wasn't going to be the case. Unfortunately, I think that the response was slow in a lot of areas. And you see other countries that had a very intense and early response to it, did very well in um, stopping the spread of the disease. So um, it doesn't surprise me that we're where we're at, we're at now. I think that um, the biggest disappointment for healthcare workers is the, is the resistance to what we know through science to be the way to prevent the spread of the disease, which is to wear a mask, to wash your hands, maintain social distancing, and to get vaccinated. There is just mountains of empirical evidence that shows that those things help decrease the transmission of the disease. And I think myself, like most healthcare workers, the majority of healthcare workers, are disappointed that we don't have greater adherence to those basic health practices and and that's really impacted, you know, the public health uh, of the nation because we haven't been able to do that. I think that probably moving forward, and there's people that would speak to this a lot more eloquently and uh, expertly who actually work in infectious disease. Um, I'm a critical care nurse, so that's not my specialty. Um, but I think that they would say that 
the same thing that I just said, that we would um, do a lot better if we followed just a few simple guidelines. And quite frankly, they're the same guidelines that the governor of the state of Washington is is um, is promoting and mandating at this time. So, Well, it's interesting too. I mean, you know, you being from Australia, I was just texting back and forth with my cousin who lives in Melbourne and, you know, she's celebrating because yet another lockdown is about to be lifted because more people are vaccinated where she's at. Um, they had to meet a certain threshold before they lifted a lockdown. But, you know, the lockdown in Australia for her, I mean, you, you can't, you can't travel more than a, a five kilometer radius from where you live, which is more extreme than what we've ever seen in the state. So I'm curious too what it's been like for you to observe how, you know, safety protocols in the U.S. have been rolled out versus, you know, your home country of Australia. Yeah, well, Australia, Australia and New Zealand um, were lucky in terms of their geographical isolation and also the fact that they're islands. And I think there's a lot of evidence that showed that island nations, Taiwan, surprisingly, did extremely well despite its proximity to to China. Um, so islands have been able to control their um, their borders well, which stops people coming in with the disease. There's no denying that Australia and New Zealand have harsher public health guidelines regarding COVID than the US does in terms of you're just not allowed to go without a mask. You're not allowed to um, to move around as freely between states. My mother um, lives in Western Australia um, where they have no cases at wow. the moment and they've had very... They've had very, very few cases there and no deaths, I believe. But Western Australia has remained isolated for this this whole period of COVID. People have not been able to travel outside Western Australia or really into Western Australia without very extenuating circumstances, you know, the death of a loved one, um, uh, compelling health reasons, uh, other compelling reasons. So that's a big burden on those people that live like that. You know, if you imagine if we told everyone in Washington that you weren't going to leave Washington for 18 months. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I mean, I know you don't have a magic ball, but, you know, we're starting to see, I mean, we saw a huge peak in cases um, in recent months, you know, in the in the late summer, early fall, and they're starting to decline uh, a little bit now. I'm curious, you know, from what you've been hearing within the medical community, like, when do you all think things will be better for for COVID here in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a good question, right? Like, when when will normalcy, if ever, will it ever will will it return? So I'll just say that um, we are seeing declining cases in the greater Seattle area um, recently, and the state of Washington overall. We still have at our hospital. We have. 15 active COVID cases in the hospital. Um, We have a lot of those people are in the intensive care unit of those 15 cases. 14 of them are unvaccinated people. We have four people on what we call ECMO at the moment, which is essentially a heart-lung bypass machine. It's the last-ditch effort that we can use to keep people alive that have very severe respiratory problems We usually use that machine for people that have had a drowning event or uh, crushing trauma to the chest and their lungs and heart are not working well enough to oxygenate their blood. The four machines that we have for that in the hospital are all on COVID-positive patients at the moment. 
So even though our cases have gone down, the seriousness of the situation has not declined. And we did have a giant bump, as you say, here in the in the late summer, early fall. And we're still dealing with the results of that. And even though cases in Seattle are going down because people in Seattle, there's a higher vaccination rate in Seattle than in um, other parts of the state and other parts of the country. And I think that people are following the protocols and mandates of the governor closer here, which will help decrease the spread of the disease, which is important because we're the largest populated area. We are right next to Idaho, Montana, and Alaska, Alaska, even though Alaska seems a long way away, Alaska relies heavily on Washington State. Harborview is the level one trauma center, and we're part of the WAMI group, which is Washington, uh, Western Montana, Idaho, um, and Washington State. And so because we have more resources, we help those more um, rural and um isolated areas deal with the more serious health issues that they have. And because of that, we've moved a lot of their patients, their very sick COVID patients from Alaska and Idaho to Seattle. So even though we're solving our problems here, I think, we're still helping other our near neighbors solve their problems. And that's still a huge drain on our on our capacity as a healthcare system. Oh, wow. That's really interesting because I've also seen, you know, the numbers in Alaska shooting up recently. And I didn't realize that if a big emergency is happening there, they probably fly folks all the way to Harborview, huh? And yeah, and um, and other hospitals in our area. So we coordinate, um, uh, we coordinate um, the admission of patients um, between all the resources in the city of Seattle. So Virginia Mason Swedish are helping with this as well because not one hospital can be responsible for taking care of all of the problems. Um, what we noticed you know, early on in the pandemic, um, what happened was we had you know, like a large outbreak, everyone remembers Life Center in Kirkland. That was the nursing home that- yeah. Had all the, and then what happened was they sent all those very sick COVID patients from the nursing home to the nearest hospital, which was Evergreen Hospital, which is over in the Kirkland area. That hospital became completely overwhelmed and couldn't deal with the level of care that they needed to provide. So from there, we learned that we had to start, you know, sort of spreading out the the load from this disease to all the hospitals so we built this system to um, to coordinate care between between the the resources here in Seattle but yes we definitely um, are helping out our near neighbors and that's not a new thing you know like if you were if you were very seriously injured in um, in a lot of areas in Alaska there's not a resource to take care of you there and you would be flown to Harborview for that level one trauma care. And this is before COVID, this has happened for years before COVID. So we've always been this um, center for intensive uh, high level care in a much larger area than people think of. Usually they just think of it as the county hospital for, you know, for the greater Seattle area, right? Yeah, that's super interesting. So, I mean, you're kind of describing what things are like now at the hospital, but what were they like at the peak of everything? I mean, like, were, you know, all the ventilators taken? I mean, what did that look like? It was a very strange time. It totally turned the the hospital on its uh, on its head. So we have, 
four ICUs at Harborview, four very big ICUs. One of them is enormous. We're a stroke center and a, neurolo and a neurological injury center because we're a trauma center. A lot of people have trauma and they injure their brain and we have a giant neurological ICU, neurosciences ICU. We turned that giant ICU almost completely over to COVID care at the height of the pandemic. So we had to move all the all the neuroscience intensive care patients out to other areas to take care of them. And then we staffed this giant 30 bed ICU unit just to take care of the COVID patients. Wow. Well, I'm speaking with Guy Madison, who is a nurse at Harborview here in Seattle. Um, he's also the bassist for Mudhoney. And, you know, now that live music has started back up again, um, I'm curious from your perspective, being both a nurse and a musician, what are your thoughts about, you know, live music happening? Like, are you concerned about, you know, the spread of the virus at shows, whether that be indoors or outdoors? There is a concern there. So, you know, Mud Honey, um, we're a we're a live act and um we do, you know, usually about 60, 60 shows a year, not all in Seattle. We go on tour with uh, in America and um and in Europe. So 2020, COVID hit, we didn't do any shows and they asked us would we like to move our shows to 2021 and we said sure, we don't know if that will happen, but you can rebook all the stuff for 2021. Clearly that didn't happen either. Um, and now, you know, it's been pushed another year. I think that what's happening at the moment is there's different opportunities for musicians to play live. I think there's, um, over the summer, a number of open air shows took place. And I think that there's less chance of transmission of the disease at open air concerts. And then some larger concerts have taken place recently. And I think that the infrastructure that's at larger at larger venues, they have more staff and they have more staff that are trained to um, interact with the, the concert goers and a better ability to check vaccination status. So I think that they've made some protocols and uh, put some safety measures in place to protect people. For a band like Mudhoney, we're a, we're a band that classically plays somewhere between a 500-seat and a 1,500-seat indoor venue. That's um, that's the sort of crowds that we draw and the sort of experience that that we're interested in in doing when we do our live shows. They're very difficult um, scenarios to have shows in because a classic show here in Seattle for us would be the Crocodile Cafe, which holds about 500 people. We play the Crocodile. It'll be a sold-out crowd. 500 people are jammed into this tiny space. Um, and those sort of shows have been dis difficult for us to visualize happening in COVID times. So checking people for vaccines is one thing, but I think that we as a band haven't felt comfortable either asking people to be in that environment or being in that environment ourselves because it does seem kind of risky. Yeah, I was going to say just from you personally, you know, just as a human being but also a nurse, like have you been comfortable with the idea of you just seeing shows? So I haven't been to see a show yet. I haven't been to a small club or a, or a large venue. I will say that I did I did attend uh, an event. I went to see the Seattle Rain play this last weekend at Shaney Stadium with my daughter, who's a big soccer fan, hmm. um, and that's an outdoor event. It's a public event, 
Um, everyone w- that was there was wearing masks, apart from when they're eating their dogs and, uh, <laughs> and and drinking their beer, as you do at the ball game. But I haven't been to an actual indoor show yet, and I haven't had the opportunity to see an outdoor show. I'm itching to do so, but I the the right opportunity hasn't arisen for me yet. Yeah, I'm also just curious too, like you know, with with COVID, you know, this past year and a half plus, has your relationship to music changed? You know, like I've heard of people that have just been so overwhelmed by what's happening in the world that they've kind of lost a sense of creativity. I mean, you haven't had a chance to play, but I'm just curious if your relationship to music has has shifted a little bit, you know, during this time. Huh, that's an interesting question. And I don't know if I've looked at it in that light in in light of my relationship towards the actual the creative process. I will say that um you know initially obviously none of us were seeing each other and uh or doing anything together as you know within the music community and that was tough and what Mudhoney did was we just started having Zoom meetings, social Zoom meetings and we'd have a, a Zoom meeting every week where we'd just hop on and talk to each other and you know ask how you doing and chat about things and, you know, drink a beer and just sort of socialize essentially because we're so used to seeing each other all the time to play music. As soon as we got vaccinated, we headed back into the practice room and that was um, both a relief and also pretty exciting to get back to it. And, you know, we immediately started writing songs and, um, Knowing that we couldn't play, um, we immediately shifted into this like, well, let's write songs, let's let's write a new record, let's start getting ready to record a new record. So in terms of creativity, I don't think that I or the other guys in Mud Honey um, felt a lag or any difficulty with that because as soon as we were able to be in the same room together after we all got vaccinated, it just immediately sprung back to life, which was great. But it sounds like once you're able to get back together again, the, the creative sparks were flying and, and a new album's in the works. Yes, and um, and it all started to come together very quickly. I think there'd been some pent-up or bottled-up um, uh, anticipation and it all came flowing out as soon as we got back in the practice room. So yeah, we're, um, we've written a bunch of songs and we're going to be going into the studio here in Seattle, um, in November and, uh, hopefully we'll get a record out of that. You never know, right? That was my conversation with Guy Madison recorded on October 21st. That was Sound and Vision. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support this show at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.